The Incarnation affected every element of human civilization without exception. While the Incarnation is often and mostly discussed soteriologically, in other words, as it relates to salvation, it has far-reaching implications, comprehensive implications, systemic implications. This final sermon on the Incarnation focuses upon the economic ramifications of Christ's Incarnation and how it should affect our financial and our spiritual stewardship. Our old covenant reading coming from Deuteronomy, coming from the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy in chapter 8, beginning in verse 10 through verse 18. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, Moses writes this. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelled therein, And when thy herds and thy flock multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. And thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Luke, the physician, in Luke in chapter 16, the first 13 verses, the first 13 verses, as the Lord Jesus Christ counsels his hearers concerning wealth, by inspiration of God, Luke records this for us. And he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him, that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, to beg, and am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore 
ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now again, the implications of Christ's incarnation are numerous because they are so comprehensive. Christ's incarnation signaled to the entire world that he is not only associated with the creation by coming a created being, but as a result of his incarnation, he is intimately involved with the practicalities and the peculiarities of life. He's involved, in other words, in everything. There is nothing that is not part of Christ's dominion. The incarnation of the Son of God emphasizes the fact that Christ entered as prophet, priest, and king into the affairs of history as part of history in order to change history from within history. So his incarnation also testifies, his incarnation also testifies that the dualists, the Manichaeans, the monastics, the, the, the deists, and the pietists are all wrong in considering Christ in his incarnation and they're all wrong in their relationship to the culture and their society. Instead of viewing the scripture as God's comprehensive plan for the restructuring of every area of human existence, they compartmentalize it into the realm of the self or the realm of the family or the realm of the spirit, which they set apart from everyday life. They're not really interested in anything else but their own selves or maybe even their church and their family. Since the pietistic and monastic position is a retreat from culture so as to not be pulled into the culture, they fail to advance the kingdom so as to transform the culture. You see, it's our our duty to transform the culture by the preaching of the gospel because the purpose of the gospel is to transform everything in the culture beginning with people because it is a comprehensive gospel. Now what these pietists are unable or perhaps even unwilling to understand is that Christ's incarnation is God's testimony that he intends to transform the culture so it may be conformed to his law word. The incarnation of the Christ and the declaration of the gospel of the kingdom testifies of that very truth. So Christ's advent, Christ's coming, signals his intention for the righteous reconstruction of the societal order whereby light and life replaces darkness and death, and where falsehood is replaced by the truth. And more importantly, the incarnation of Christ signals the coming of the kingdom on earth in time and in history. He has come to establish his kingdom, to be progressively being advanced by the body of Christ, and that's our testimony, that's our our purpose, to advance the kingdom of God by the body of Christ, the church, as we systematically address every area and every element of human life biblically. Now, to be clear, once again, and this is important, there is nothing in this world that the scriptures fail to address. The scripture addresses everything. 
every element of man's human life, every element of human institution is a creation of God and the scriptures address everything, how to structure it, how to preserve it, and how it can be righteous. So every element of society, every societal structure, therefore, is to be transformed into what God has determined for it. Now, God never intended man to navigate life or or set up institutions without a guidebook, especially after the fall of Adam. He never intended the institutions and elements of human civilization to be constructed along man's fallible, anti-Christian, sinful, and rebellious intentions. Technically speaking, Adam and all that are enslaved to the Adamic nation is Antichrist. If you want to know who is the first Antichrist, I can tell you this, it was Adam. And so whenever a societal construct, whenever an institution, a church, a family, whatever it is, whenever a a societal construct is built upon the Adamic model, according to the Adamic nature, without the aid of scripture, it is destined to fail, destined to be destructive. It is totally antichrist. So in God's attempt to reorder the world, God provides a guidebook. God provides the word of God as a navigation tool. Think of it as your your true north, your compass, your, your GPS. Knowing that man is unable, and that's what man needs to understand, that they are unable to rightly govern their world, govern their lives, even navigate their life without the scripture. God then mercifully, and this is why the scriptures are so so precious because God has mercifully provided his word so as to direct men into the building of a Christian social construct to replace the anti-Christian Adamic construct that we now face today. But in the pride of sinful man, sinful man imagines that he is wiser than God, that he can navigate life without divine guidance. But in the end, whatever he attempts once he embraces a hatred or a, a disdain for Scripture, whatever he attempts degenerates into chaos and rebellion, and as a result, his entire house of cards falls upon him in utter ruin. Consider the Scriptures as a comprehensive and detailed directory of men's dealings within the realm of his relationship with both God and among his fellow men. The written word of God is a divine document instructing mankind on how to function productively in the world rightly for the glory of God, for the advancement of God's kingdom, and for the good of all humanity. When Christ entered into the history of the world, he entered as the word made flesh in order to emphasize the importance of the word of God. So not to be reading the word of God, not to be studying the word of God, not to be looking at the word of God and looking at its commandments and then following them is to destroy your own soul. And this is why so often in dealing with the people, Christ said, you have heard, it has been written, it has been written. He's pointing back to the word of God. This is your navigational GPS. It has been written this way, and I will tell you this. And that's why he often quoted the scriptures. It was the logos, the incarnate living word that came to declare the veracity of the written word. Not to be involved in reading and studying the written word is going to wind up to be detrimental to your own soul. And this is why Paul directs Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. Notice what he says. 
He doesn't only say, you need to study God's word. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is inbreathed. And it is profitable. Notice, it is profitable, comprehensively profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God is fully equipped to live in this world rightly. Note, all scripture, not some, not part of it, but all the scripture is profitable. And of course, this is referring to the Old Testament particularly, and yet it does not negate the inspiration of the New, since Paul was clear on the New Testament being inspired as well. So notice what Paul says. First, he tells Timothy that every aspect of the Holy Scripture is profitable for theological understanding and understanding about God, doctrine. Through the Scripture, we are taught theological principles so that we might understand God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant plan of redemption, and the many other aspects of theology. Secondly, Paul states that the scripture is also profitable for reproof. In other words, God's word offers evidence for the benefit of our conviction. Then Paul tells Timothy, thirdly, that the scripture is to be used to redirect us by correcting us. The problem with most people is they don't want to read the word of God because they don't want to be corrected by the word of God. Now this word, this idea of redirection, can be understood as reformation. So whenever we read the Word of God, it is reforming us, it's transforming us in order to reform us and conform us to what God has in mind for us. And therefore, if there is to be any reformation of the individual family, church, community, or state, the Word of God must be used in its entirety. Paul's fourth point is that he adds to this by stating that the Word of God is also a tool of instruction in the things which are right and good. So his intention is that those that follow the scriptural directive would be able to then mature and be thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, you follow the dictates of the word of God, of the law word of God, the Holy Scripture, and everything is okay. I'm amazed when people are saying, oh, my life is a mess, things are a mess, I'm confused, I'm in chaos, it's all messed up. Why? Ask the question, make the connections, connect the dots. It's because you're not following the Word of God. If your life is in the trash, it's because you're not following God's Word. If you're confused, if you're depressed, if you find that your life is chaotic, it's because you're not following the Word of God. You follow the Word of God and you then are able to be equipped You are maturing and you are being thoroughly furnished for every good work. And this holds true for everyone and every aspect of society. So you might want to look at the Word of God this way. The Word of God is the reorganizing document. And when used faithfully, it reestablishes a life of peace and righteousness When it's used faithfully in the society, it reestablishes a just and free society. So you depart from any of God's precepts. Things go terribly wrong. In other words, you can't say, well, I like this part. I, I really like the part where it says that Jesus really loves us. I like this part where it says that Christ came to save his people from their sins. I like that part. But I don't like the part that's condemning me for my sin. Well, that's... That's why the Bible is there, to condemn you for your sins so you don't sin anymore. So now let's ask a question. What are the areas of humanity that God claims? 
Does he only command the life of the individual, family, structure, worship, gospel evangelism, and morality to be regulated by the written word? Or does he command obedience in other areas as well? And of course, the answer is, it's a rhetorical question, because the answer is everything. And if he commands everything, what are those everything things? Because God claims every area of the created order as his personal dominion, he also claims how those areas are to be constructed. So think about it. the elements of civilization that God claims. What are they? Well, let's make, make a list. Theology and religion, of course. Evangelism, piety, worship, when to worship, how to worship, family, marriage relations, Morality, law, including the penalties for crimes, government, politics, art, literature, music, science, biology, technology, mathematics, history, international relations, immigration, the military, science, medicine, health, banking, money and economics, trade, business, the media, entertainment, and even time management. And I'm sure I left out a whole bunch of things. How to dress, how to speak, how to think. Everything known to man... God has a directive spelled out either by commandment, example, principle, or insinuation. And so whenever we wish to understand what God has to say about a certain topic, we need to just look in the scriptures. And one of the areas that is so often overlooked is the area of economics. And so the question is this. What does the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ have to do with economics? Another question might be, Does scripture command how we are to work, trade, generate financial substance? What we are to spend our money on? How we are to spend our money? How we are to invest in our general conception of money and finances? Does the Bible speak about that? Well, of course it does. So consider the relationship between the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and economics. Christ makes this overarching declaration. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says this. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now in this statement, the incarnate Savior is stating that the law and whatever the prophets declared is reestablishing the truth of God and His coming is verifying that truth and therefore it must be obeyed by mankind as the commandments of God. It was as if the Incarnation sealed the testimony of the Law and the Prophets as truth once and for all time. And this is the intent of the word fulfill. It is the word which means to establish or to execute. So Christ is saying that he came to execute all that the Law and the Prophets have declared. Now hearing this, one might naturally look to whatever the Law and the Prophets said about a particular topic. In this case, we would ask, what did they say about economics? And they had a lot to say about economics. Now, the word economics, however, comes from two Greek words, oiko and nomos. Oiko, house, nomos, law. In other words, what does the law say about household issues? Whether those issues are for the individual house or the temple of God, the individual, the house of God, or the community or the state, the nation or the world. So what does the Bible say about those areas? Now, normally, when the word economics is used, the way we use it in our modern day, it refers to money and finances, and that's a very narrow definition. However, when the scripture speaks of economics, it sets forth an overarching principle of stewardship. 
either of money, wealth, skills, time, even our children. How do we steward our children? What example are we leaving for our children? Are we stewarding our children by being an example of of Christian? When dealing with the economics of transacting business, the overarching principle is very simple. Honesty. Consider the law of honesty in business. In these verses, God is not only speaking of monetary trading, but the business of serving God in the business of kingdom advancement. Now remember what Jesus said. He said, I must be about my father's business. And we love that line. We just love that because Jesus is all about the father's business. But then he says this, as the father has sent me, so send I you. So we must be then about the father's business. Notice Leviticus 19, 35 and 6. Notice what God says. As far as transacting business, whether it's the father's business or economic business or stewardship business, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in met yard, in weight or in measure, just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin ye shall have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, a balance, a righteous consideration of all things. Solomon reiterates the law of honesty in business in Proverbs 11, verse 1. He says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. When you're not well balanced, whether it's in trading or in business or in stewardship of your life, or your your structure of life, or your structure of your family, when your family's out of kilter, when your family's out of balance, a false balance, not a righteous balance, when you have a false balance in life, it's an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight, when things are done rightly, it's God's delight. He repeats this again in Proverbs 20, verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures, both of them are alike abominations to the Lord. Malachi speaks of the stewardship of the tithe in in Malachi 3, 8, and 9. But he's merely making these statements from what he read in the book of Moses and from Nehemiah about honesty in relation to God's business. Now, when we think about the tithe, we think about 10%. But the 10% that we give to God financially is a representation of the whole. It really means the whole. You're giving God 10%, but what he's saying is, I'm taking the whole, and I'm only taking 10%, but it symbolizes the entirety. When we think about the tithe, some might argue and say, well, wait a minute. You're telling me I need to be about the Father's business, and I need to function with my life dedicated to the gospel, whether it's in worship or fellowship or evangelism or honesty in business. But the Bible teaches 10%. Maybe I'll just give 10% of my time. But the 10% is symbolic of the whole. And so by Christ saying that he has not come to destroy the law, but to exercise it, he was including the law of economic stewardship, which includes all of life. So as a result of man's sinful rebellion against the law of God, especially when it comes to money, and his proper stewardship, Christ makes this statement in Matthew 6.24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot. Notice it doesn't say you may not, 
But you cannot serve God and mammon. Note, he never said that you cannot have money. He never said that you cannot use money. He simply said you cannot serve money. It cannot be your focus. It cannot be your life's purpose. It is merely a tool for God's work, for the kingdom of God. Now, when we're talking about money, we're talking about more than dollars and cents. We're talking about everything. We're talking about a stewardship of life. So money used properly is a blessing. Used selfishly or dishonestly, it becomes a curse. Paul warns against lusting after money in 1 Timothy 6.10. Notice what he says. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Notice, when you have the love of money, you're erring from the faith because you're covetous. And notice he says, they have then pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So here again, Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. A lot of people misquote that. Oh, money is the root of all evil. No, 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 no. You misquoted the scripture. Rather, it is the loving of money which is the problem. For the love of money is the root of all evil. In fact, in Luke 16, as we shall see in a moment, he counsels us to make friends of money. He even calls it the unrighteous mammon, so that it may be used for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So let's consider just for a moment the parable of the unjust steward. Firstly, although the scripture labors the man unjust, the parable reaches far beyond a general act of injustice by this, this man, by this unjust, by this unjust steward. This steward was indeed very resourceful in his economic dealings. In other words, he was very savvy. He was a savvy investor, but he was wasteful in his benefactors, with his benefactors' goods. It is that wasteful practice that made him unjust. In his case, he wasted money. But how much wasted things do we involve ourselves in? How many of us waste time? How many of us waste opportunity? Are we then not unjust? Now the word used in verse 8 seems to imply that this unjust steward's action was immoral. Concerning money and the economic dealings of the rich man, and yet, on the other hand, he is commended for his ability to both make money and settle his debts in a crisis, even if it is at an economic loss to himself. Now, the Greek word used here for unjust implies an overall character of life. His whole life was covetous. His whole, his whole demeanor was immoral. His immorality was, was not that he made money, however. There's nothing wrong with making money. Go make money. Make a lot of it. So his immorality was not that he made money, nor is there any implication in this parable that he made money illegally or by way of sinful actions. By God labeling him unjust was in the way he stewarded his life, which translated into the wealth given to him from the rich man, which he used to feather his own economic well-being. Secondly, as stated before, he was a shrewd banker. He's a shrewd investor. He lent out the money that he was entrusted with so as to make money for himself, but not really his master. He took his master's goods and he feathered his own nest. Nowhere do we read that he borrowed any money. That would have made him unwise. He used what he was given by his master and he used it not to prosper his master, 
but to prosper himself. In fact, he was the master over those who borrowed from him. If he had borrowed, he would have been a servant to the lender and no master. The fact that he didn't borrow in and of itself was an obedience to the law of God. You think about this. This man's borrowing from the master. How often do we borrow from the master? Each day we borrow time. Each day we borrow our health, because that's what God gives us, health. Each day we, we borrow opportunities, we borrow everything from the Master. It's the Master's time given to us. Why? To squander it or to invest it? Each day we are given so much from the Master. Why? To further God's wealth, not ours. To further His kingdom, not ours. Thirdly, It also appears that even though he was immoral, he was very successful in his dealings. He was able to cut the payback rate and still settle his debts with the rich man who was his master. Very savvy. Fourthly, Christ commends him. Isn't that interesting? Christ is commending him, not because he's immoral or because he wasted his master's goods, but he's commending him for his wit and wisdom in a pinch. Not only is this man commended, Christ is now using him as an example to teach us. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, not because he was unjust, but because he had done wisely. Fifth point, Christ identifies him as a child of the world and not a child of light, which indicates that he was not a true saint. He was not one of God's elect, although he is put in the position of stewardship by the rich man. How many Christians today are given so many things from the Master, but squandering them, which is proving that they're not really the elect of God? And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So what was his problem? What was the man's problem? Well, he was wasteful. He was self-focused. In respect of time, we have to recognize that we are often guilty of using time for our own benefit and not for our masters. And likewise, opportunity. How many opportunities do we have to serve God, to serve His church, to serve His people? And yet we waste that. Wasteful, self-focused. I will spend all of my energy on my projects. But when it comes to God's house, when it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to God's goods, the children of this world in their generation are wiser than the children of light. Wasteful and self-focused. Notice verse 1, And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. How much do we waste the goods of God? He squandered what he had been given by making money for himself without regard for his master's well-being. And this shows a lack for the master's interests. This steward didn't love the master. He didn't care about the master. He didn't honor his master. Rather, he denied that the master had any oversight. And he despised him by stealing from him. He took his stewardship responsibility... Readily, oh he, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll be a, I'll be your steward. He took 
what the master was going to give him readily, but he proceeded to selfishly waste his goods. And here it is the lesson. All mankind, especially redeemed man, must respond biblically when it comes to economics and stewardship, especially when it comes to time and opportunity that God has given us and his kingdom advancement. We have been put in trust, like this steward, with the Lord's goods, with our health, with our time, with our money, with our skill, with our knowledge, with our children, with the church of Jesus Christ. If you really believe that we have a faithful congregation here and the preaching from this pulpit is faithful, then you will do all that you can to preserve it because the Master has given you this stewardship. We have been put in trust with the Lord's goods. Therefore, we must not become like this wasteful, unjust steward when it comes to our economic dealings. There's no getting away from the fact that every aspect of our lives revolves around stewardship, the stewardship that God has put us in trust with. Everyone, without exception, examines life from a theological position, if not from an economic position, which, of course, even economics is theological at its root. The foundation of all flesh is religious. It is either biblically sound or humanistically illogical. And therefore, Christ must be our example, and His law must be our standard. So God, our Master, has given us a stewardship, but He had given Christ a stewardship. God had initially given Christ the stewardship, because he knew he would not be an unjust steward. His was the ultimate stewardship. And he followed the scriptural principles of God's law faithfully. It was not only a stewardship over the souls of the elect which Christ had been given, but a stewardship of the entire world. It was also a stewardship of God's law, and it was to be declared and applied to the world by his incarnation, confirmed by his resurrection, and empowered by Pentecost where the church then would pick up and be the righteous stewards of God's truth and his word. So it was Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God that honored God because he was a faithful steward. There was also a stewardship over the glory of God which Christ had. He represented God as the express image of his person. For Christ not to be a faithful steward meant dishonoring God. However, as the faithful son, which he was, he honored his father by his stewardship and he calls us to that stewardship as well. As the father has sent me, so send I you as the stewards of the master's goods. Christ's entire life was to establish the covenant for all time and throughout all eternity. Christ came to recapitalize. You think about economically speaking. He came to recapitalize the spiritual and social order of society so that it would be reorganized according to the dictates and pleasure of God. So Christ himself is the ultimate example of economic stewardship. Our task also, our task also is to recapitalize the social order by honoring God by our stewardship through the declaration of God's word and the application of his truth to every aspect of life. Now what has happened as a result of the apostasy and lackadaisical attitude of the church concerning the culture, even, even concerning worship. Worship now is an appendage. It's not the core and the root that begins each week. It becomes whatever we want to make it. And once the worship of God is diluted and looked at as optional, there is no hope for society. Society will collapse. It will collapse all around us. 
So what has happened as a result of the apostasy and lackadaisical attitude of the church concerning the culture is the demoralization and decapitalization of the societal order where darkness is given to light and good is replaced by evil. That's what's happening today. Christ would not squander his glorious inheritance like Adam or like Esau, but rather he would be a wise steward. Adam's stewardship was tested in Eden and he failed. Christ's stewardship was tested during the days of his flesh and he remained faithful. He should be our example. Now one of Christ's incarnation objectives was to reintroduce the ethical stewardship principles of life in every aspect of it. Our life upon this earth is also a stewardship trial. It's a test. It's a test. The apostle warns Timothy and the church elders at Ephesus and including the entire congregation, he says this in 5.15-17. through 17. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now consider again the text, Luke 16. And he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was a accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear of this of thee? Give an account. There will be a day of accounting. Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be my steward. Note, there will always be an account. You cannot fool God. People think that God doesn't see, God doesn't know, I'm hiding from God. Give an account. There will always be an account given to God from every man for everything that they've done in their stewardship of their lives. And when God calls a man to account, either through providence, sickness, or possible death, that man begins to worry. And rightly so, he should worry. And what does he say when he's ready on the deathbed after he's recognized he's not been a good steward? What am I going to do now? You know, once once an account was asked of this unjust man, he entered into crisis mode. What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. He's too proud to beg. He cannot dig. In other words, he has no skills to work and make money since he had been in a welfare mode all of his life, taking but not producing taking all that God had blessed him with but not giving back. What is he going to do? I cannot beg and I cannot dig. When the bills come due and the money has been squandered upon riotous living, entertainment of the carnal senses, what are you going to do? When you wasted all your time in the playground of life and you didn't serve God, what are you going to do when he comes to take an account? And this lifestyle is encouraged by the welfare state that we now live in. But that welfareism also translates into spiritual things. As I said before, the blessings of a faithful church, the blessings of the faithful preaching of God's word. What are you going to do with it? The state rewards this reckless lifestyle by not holding men account to a strict moral economic code, but God does not do what the state does. He will hold us to account. We cannot steal from the responsible, the thrifty, the good and profitable stewards of God's resources, we have to be good and responsible. We have to be thrifty. We have to be good stewards of God's resources. Even the church no longer desires to hold men accountable to proper stewardship principles. 
God forbid we call the people of God to account when they're not on the Lord's Day worship, when they're not doing the service to the church, when they're not involved in the church, but they're just squandering everything that they've been given. Oh, yeah, churches don't want to tell people that they have to be held to account because then they'll lose their tithe, they'll lose their fellowship, they'll lose their people. But if the church doesn't hold men accountable to God's will, if the church refuses to hold men accountable to their stewardship, who will? You see, we often create our own financial and spiritual ruin. And then when in a crisis... We become very aware of the evils of squander. But once that happens, if you're not developing faith, if you're not trusting God, when a crisis hits, what are you going to do? You know, it's all a little too late. None of the money earned by this unjust steward was targeted for God's kingdom advancement. We do not read that the steward made money for the rich man, but rather it seemed that it was all for himself. The squandering of resources is actually a theological problem rooted in an age-old heresy. It's not just squandering. It's heretical from a theological perspective. Unjust and wasteful stewardship is antinomian in nature. Now, antinomian simply means against the law of God because the law of God says be a good steward. So it's a theological problem. It's rooted in a theological apostasy. In order to be faithful in our economic stewardship, we must be lawful in our economic stewardship. Note the commendation. This is quite odd. Verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now God commends here the steward, this servant, for his ability to successfully respond to the situation. But he does not commend him for his sin of squandering, but only for his ability to act resourcefully when it comes to monetary situations. Note the next section of the verse. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Herein is the rub. The carnal-minded are usually wiser when it comes to economic stewardship, using resources that God has given them for themselves. That is not to be. The Christian community is to be wiser and more successful in the affairs of stewardship and money and skill and knowledge and service for the kingdom's advancement. We're going to let the worldly run roughshod over us as far as stewardship is concerned? Moses tells us that the only reason we have any any money, any wealth, any stewardship whatsoever is by the sheer mercy of God. He then tells us why we have the wherewithal that we have. You know, if you want to know why do you have money, why do you have skill, why do you have health, why do you have, why do you have life? What is it for? Notice what he says, Deuteronomy 8.18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Well, we like that. Oh God, give me more money. Give me more wealth. But now he gives the rub. So that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. That's the reason for money. That's the reason for your skill, for your stewardship, for your opportunities. To establish the covenant of God. The saints are to use the economic principles of Scripture coupled with proper kingdom stewardship and motivation so as to be blessed of God in the area of wealth. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, the unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, and in other words, when you die, they, those whom you have blessed by your stewardship, 
may receive you into everlasting habitations. That's what that means. Christ is saying, make friends, make money, use your knowledge, use your skill, so that when you die, those whom you leave behind that have been blessed by your stewardship, by your inheritance giving them of knowledge, of service, they may receive you. Finally, on that faithful day into everlasting habitations. This saint is to make friends of the tool of money in order to get the job done in advancing the kingdom of God upon the earth as he blesses the people of God with his economic stewardship. That's what it's all about. We use our lives to bless others so that when we die, we are blessed because we have given back what God has given to us. Now, the Reverend Thomas Scott comments, he says, The disciples of Christ, however, are directed to use riches in making to themselves friends, that is, to expend them in acts of piety and charity, that many, being benefited by them, may pray for blessings on them as their benefactors. Now, Clark comments, he says this, Riches promise much and perform nothing. They excite hope and confidence and deceive both. In making a man depend on them for happiness, they rob him of the salvation of God and of eternal glory. For these reasons, they are represented as unjust and deceitful. Now, money can be powerful for the righteous restructuring of society if used properly. And after we have done rightly in our lifelong stewardship, the Bible promises we shall be received into everlasting habitations after we die. Then Christ sets forth the clear teaching of this parable in verse 10 and following. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon in your stewardship, who will commit to your trust the true riches? How are you expecting to go to heaven? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, God's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one that despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. This is an absolute declaration. No man can serve two masters. And you need to decide this day, this day, the first day of the week on the Lord's Day and the first day of this coming year, who you will serve. Men would be burned at the stake rather than to deny the service of God. The modern church can't even get up early enough to make it on church on time. So you will either be a servant of money for money's sake and for the personal economic prosperity that it promises deceitfully, or you will be a servant of God and use money for Him in your God-given stewardship commission. In the realm of knowledge, you can use your knowledge. In the realm of skill, you can use your skill. Not that you would have knowledge to be puffed up or skill that you can devote it to yourself. You have to ask, what am I going to use that God has given me for God? So the question I leave with you is this. How are you going to steward your life? Your time, your skill, your passion, your financial resources, your biblical knowledge, whatever God has given you, His grace and His gospel. How are you going to steward it? What is your long-term plan for recapitalizing the work of the kingdom 
so as to recapitalize the societal order of mankind. May God be pleased to grant unto us economic wisdom in the coming years, that we may be wiser than the children of darkness for the successful advancement of Christ's will upon the earth. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen and amen.